Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. And it is a great day to be in the Republic, ladies and gentlemen. I'll tell you why. The world's most unpopular couple have been at it again. That's right. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex have been invading their own privacy once again. This time, it's an interview with them in house magazine Vogue, the go-to publication of all the people in this country uh, who love reading about the lives of the rich and the famous. Harry and Meghan care so much about the health of the planet and all of our futures that they've pledged to only have two children. Aside from insulting the Queen... Uh, who's had many more than that, and the Duke of Duchess of Cambridge, uh, who happens to be Harry's brother and his wife. They've had three. It's yet another virtue signalling announcement from the pair who are fast becoming the most unpopular couple in the history of the royal family. Now, I know you might think I've been a little bit hard on Meghan and Harry, but they really need to sit down, they need to shut up, and they need to stop telling us how we should be living our lives. What next? Are they going to tell us what car to drive? Are they going to tell us how many security people to have? Are they going to tell us how much money to spend on our wedding? Because I think they are overstepping their mark Massively. They may, however, be onto something, and I'm going to support them in this one particular aspect, because if the royals could stop having children altogether, the whole institution would disappear off the face of the earth. They might actually be onto something. 0344 499 1000. Coming up in the show uh, later on, we'll be talking to Times columnist Matthew Paris about Brexit, Boris, and some of the other balderdash being held around the political sphere at the moment. And we'll be giving you a few ideas about what to do with the kids over the summer holidays, which is always something of a problem for parents. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, as you know, this is also the place to have your own voices heard because while we are not the only radio station uh, around at the moment, we are the only one that tells it to you straight, that tells you like it is, uh, and also takes your view as an important part of the show because we want you to be part of the show. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Talk Radio uh, is the tweet you can send uh, tweets to. And, of course, uh, you can send us texts as well to 87222 and you can start your message with the word talk. They'll cost you 
125p plus your standard network rate. Now, Harry and Megan were in the news just the other day because, of course, uh, Megan is going to be the um, guest editor of Vogue magazine in September. Apparently, she's been working on it for eight months. That's what she's told us. And she's chosen 15 iconic feminists to put on the front cover. Not one of them was the Queen. Not one of them uh, was the Duchess of Cambridge, who is, of course, her sister-in-law. And you do start to wonder and worry about somebody like Meghan Markle, who is clearly so interested in her own self-aggrandisement and her own place in the world and her own kind of, you know, virtue-signalling charitable work. She's also announced today uh, that she's going to be starting a line of fashion uh, clothing, which is going to be sold uh, to benefit a charity. It's all very well, but I just think they're really overdoing it. And Harry, who once was one of the most popular men in the world, is fast becoming one of the most unpopular. And now with this ridiculous idea that she should say, because we're only going to have two children, so should you... Uh, I think they're overstepping the mark, quite frankly. Let's talk to Emma Ravel, uh, who is Communications Manager for the Institute of Economic Affairs. Emma, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much indeed for being here. Now, I don't know what you make of uh, all of these uh, kind of warnings about population growth and the end of the world and the decimation of the planet if we don't change the way we behave. But whatever way you look at it, surely this is over-egging uh, the pudding from uh, Harry and Meghan, isn't it? We're not interested in what they want to say about uh, the climate, do we? Well, I think the issue is that we're very interested in what they have today. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it constantly. So that that is one point. Um, I don't well, that's think not entirely I... true, but we can deconstruct that later. <laughs> um, I don't think they're overstepping the mark. I, d I don't think you're right in saying they they haven't said that everyone you know should limit the number of children. They've just said this is what we are going to do. This is how we've chosen to assess our impact on the planet. And I think that's. Um, still not um, very popular, but I think it's a growing feeling among young people um, that actually that, that not having children or having fewer children is a good way to limit your impact on the climate. Whether that's true or not, that's another question. Well, indeed, and that is really the crux of the matter, isn't it? Because it's all very well to say, well, I'm going to do this because it's going to save the planet. If it doesn't happen to be true, then there's not much point in doing it, is there? The thing is, what, what human ingenuity is the thing that's going to save the planet. That's, that's always been true. Um, population growth, people have been worried for decades that population growth would lead to scarcity, would lead to famine, would lead to mass starvation. That hasn't been true because every single time we face the challenge, human ingenuity has enabled us to overcome it. Yeah. And also population growth in this country uh, is relatively small compared to what it is in many other countries. And so rather like the whole climate argument, if you're going to stop driving around in a diesel car in Britain, that is not going to have much effect on all of the population's and the pollutions that are going on in other parts of the world where there's many more people and much more industry. That's very true. I, I don't think um, that you should say, oh, well, because I'm not the biggest problem, I shouldn't do anything. I think we should all try and do our bit. But I think what, what Harry and Meghan here are missing is the wider issue. They have an incredibly privileged position to, you know, influence millions of people across the world. And the way that they have chosen, chosen to do it in this particular instance isn't to choose the most effective thing they can do it's to choose quite a niche point and talk about having children i mean the royal family's carbon footprint doubled in 2019 because of <laughs> all their all their international flights on well, behalf yeah. of the queen which is their job and i'm not saying they shouldn't do that that's absolutely that that's what they're for to represent the queen and represent britain across the world but maybe they should look at that before they talk about, you know, how many children they want. Well, exactly right. And, and I mean, the hypocrisy is what I want to talk about as well with these people, because it's not just about them saying to everybody else, you should do this. But clearly by saying it, 
they expect other people to kind of be inspired because they think they're inspirational people. Meghan Markle thinks that she's kind of Joan of Arc. Somehow she seems to have thought that this crown has landed on her head and she's now going to be able to use her position to be as kind of private as she wishes to be at times as a public as she wishes to be at other times. Here's a woman who's now saying, I'm going to save the planet by only having two kids. But she went to New York... Uh, for a very, very expensive uh, hen weekend just before uh, before she had the baby. You know, and, I mean, you think to yourself, well, really? You know, how can you say that on the one hand that we should be trying to save the planet? On the other hand, having a massive carbon footprint, it just doesn't make any sense. I think uh, Meghan is still struggling to find her place in the royal family. It's a very difficult balancing act, um, and it's very different to, obviously, the celebrity culture that she's come from. I think she'll get there, but I think you're right in that saying, you know, taking very fancy private flights um, across the world to see your friends and then talking about, you know, how other people can impact their climate change. There is some hypocrisy there. Yeah, not just some hypocrisy. I mean, there was a great example of the ludicrous nature of some of these climate change rebellion types yesterday, uh, where a whole bunch of people were, uh, were parading up and down the city of London and they went to the building where they thought Drax was producing its business from. And this is a place which is a big uh, sort of big producer of, fire, uh, of power stations, right? It's Turned out Drax had moved out of that building a year before. So they're actually picketing the wrong building, you know. And you just find these people, and, they, and when I saw some of them being interviewed, they were talking about how the governments aren't doing anything, we've got to pressurise governments. I mean, governments are doing loads about climate change. We've already had Theresa May as her legacy, telling us that she's going to make uh, Britain carbon neutral by the year 2030. You know, we're paying massive amounts of tax to be greener. We're paying a green subsidy to all of our energy companies. You know, there is nothing to say that the government isn't doing anything. I think what the climate change debate really needs is is an injection of fact. Yes, I agree. Realism, because I, agree. I think we're there is a, a worry that while we talk about climate change, as we quite rightly should, it becomes very apocalyptic. It becomes very, you know, if we don't do something now, the world will end in 10 years. Yes, in which is clearly crazy. Years, the population of the planet has gone up 150%, but poverty's fallen, infant mortality's fallen, yeah. famine's basically disappeared, and incomes have doubled. Yes. So actually, we need to be realistic about the challenges we face because that's the only way we're going to tackle them. And listening to people who say that we should stop flying in, in, unless it's an emergency, and we should stop driving around in cars, we should walk everywhere, cycle everywhere, and um, effectively you know, not use as much energy as we currently use to heat our homes or to power any of our electrical appliances, You know, they're effectively asking us to go back to a previous age when we didn't have all this stuff which makes life not only easier but actually more efficient and so to tell people that you can't go on a plane um you know it's just ludicrous isn't it it is, and these arguments are very counterproductive because people hear them and say, I don't want to do that, and then they turn off from the wider climate debate. Which yeah. Then we lose the opportunity to talk about things that we can actually do. What we need to talk about is how, you know, as I said before, human ingenuity, how creativity is going to, you know, maintain, uh, create solutions that can get us out of this. The, the way not to talk about it is to panic and say we all need to, you know, stop eating meat, stop drinking milk, stop getting in cars and just live in mud huts in the woods. And what do you think this is all about? I mean, you're a relatively young person, Emma. I don't wish to patronise you, but, I mean, your fellow young people seem to have had a sort of collective aneurysm and gone a bit crazy. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I think it's it's a, a lack of control over many other areas of public policy. You know, people are feeling quite disenfranchised in general, and this is an area where young people feel that they have a voice. Yeah, but when I was growing up, I didn't worry that I didn't have a voice. I didn't worry that I didn't have any impact on government policy. You know, why do they think they should have it? 
I think they're entitled to have a voice and an impact. I just think I, w- well, I wish they would do no, that. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. I'm going to stop you there. But why should they have a voice and an impact? I mean, any more than anybody else? You know, they're basically making out that everybody else is ruining the planet. The inference is uh, that it's all of those horrible people who don't care about the planet that are ruining it, and they're the ones that are going to save it, as if they're on some kind of crusade and as if they've been dobbed on the shoulder by some saint who has told them to go out and fight the good fight. I don't know why they're doing it. I definitely agree that framing the climate change debate as young people versus old people who have killed the planet and destroyed it and young people need to stand up and save it, that's not helpful right. to it's anybody. Not. No, it's not. I mean, there's plenty of old people on these marches over Extinction Rebellion as well. So, I mean, it's not just that, but it's certainly there is a certain generation and a certain number of young people who seem to think that they have the right to tell everybody else what to do. I saw um, figures last week that showed that the the age group that were making the most changes to their day-to-day life because of concerns about climate change were 40 to 55. I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's so, absolutely and true. Young people are worried, I think, about the bigger picture, the people who are actually making the changes that are going to have the impact yeah, but and the, older people. But many of them are not actually doing anything about it. I mean, an awful lot of the stories that we see around some of these Extinction Rebellion protesters are very typical of how relatively well-off, relatively middle-class kids grow up. They travel around the world and then suddenly they realise at some point or other they want to be active politically. And so they stop travelling the world for a while uh, and they start demonstrating for a while and then they'll get a proper job and then they'll stop demonstrating. You know, it's all, it's all like a sort of rather predictable and rather tragic scene to me. And at some point or other, uh, yes, we will change the way that we live. Uh, we already have, to be honest. We'll all be driving around in electric cars probably in 20 years' time. But, you know, in the end, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a sort of a mass hysteria I'm seeing here. It is, it is certainly edging in that direction. I think when you see, you know, Extinction Rebellion protesters shutting down London for a week and a half, yeah. you, you sort of think this is, this is... You can claim you're raising awareness all you want, but what you're actually doing is, is distorting the issue and creating carnage. Yeah, exactly right. And a lot of people on Twitter are asking this question, and this is one for Harry and Meghan. What if she, give, what if she gets pregnant again and, and she's expecting twins? What's she going to do then? Because then that, <laughs> obviously, that would obviously leave her with quite a dilemma. I think they would uh, they would make a sensible decision in that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But, I mean, you may not have a view of the royal families in the same way that, that I do, but I was saying rather sort of tongue-in-cheek earlier, if have the whole royal family adopt this policy and maybe go one step further and actually agree not never to have any more children at all, then that'll be the end of the royal family. Quite a lot of people would be encouraging that. I mean, as I said earlier, there are they have a very privileged position. There are many other things that they could suggest that would be more helpful. Well, there's lots, I mean, there's lots of great causes they could be um, sort of supporting, right? Harry famously had the Invictus Games, which a lot of people thought was a great thing uh, for, for uh, veterans of the armed forces and disabled people to take part in a sort of a secondary Olympics, which was great. But he's fast becoming a very unpopular young man, which is a shame because he used to be one of the most popular men in the world. I think there were a lot of, you know, people are quite happy to talk about Meghan constantly and there are a lot of different issues that feed into that Um I'm, I'm not sure. I think... Well, she's not helping herself, Harry, is she? I don't think there is anything she could do that would make people like her at this stage. I think people... You just think it's gone too so far? I think people have got into a cycle of seeing everything she does through a certain lens. I think that's very unfair on her. Um, what, what sort of lens do you mean? People, I think people already have decided they don't like her. 
I think people for a have. Of reasons. I don't but think there's a reason for that. She's not very likable. I mean, the fact that we were lied to about when the baby was born, about when the baby uh, actually appeared, where the baby was born, all of that. You know, people don't like being lied to. People don't like do members of the royal family taking public money and treating the public like idiots. I don't think wanting some privacy around the birth of your first child is... That's, that's not the same thing. Life. Wanting privacy and telling lies, two different things. I don't think they lied. Yes, they did. They lied about the birth of the child. They said that she'd gone into labour when she'd already had the baby. I think there's a difference between lying and a poor comm strategy. Really? Yes. Well, I suppose you would say that. You're the communications manager for the Institute of Economic Affairs, so I suppose you're into spin. But I call it a lie when you say something which, is, which you know to be wrong. And misleading. I think it was misleading. I don't think it's the biggest problem that we face or that Meghan faces right now. No, it's not. But, the, the, but the, what I'm saying to you is, is the reason why people don't like her and don't like them as a couple is because they don't really like the way they've been conducting themselves. They don't like the fact that we had to pay a massive amount of money for a very show-busy wedding, which was all about look at me and my show-busy friends. They don't like the fact that that, that, that went... All the things that went on about around the, the birth of the baby and the, the, the pictures that weren't being done and all of... You know, they've, they've just been either very badly advised, in my view... I mean, if you were in running their communications department, I bet you wouldn't have told them to do any of that. No, but I also don't think she was the one writing the press release three hours after the birth of her child. So, well, I think, well, so know, I think she's running not, the Instagram I account. Very, I think it's very unfair to pick on her specifically. Really? OK. All right, Emma. Well, I won't pick on her and I won't pick on you. I won't pick on anybody at all. But I want to hear from other people who want to pick on her. 0344-499-1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. How about we give a message to the royal family? Don't just don't have any more kids and then that'll be the end of you lot. Uh, we can get all the palaces back. We can save a load of money and all will be well. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Well, before I introduce Matthew Paris to the uh, wider world of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, I'm going to read this, uh, which is a very, very interesting tweet I've had from Muttley, who says, So, this week we have Richard Branson telling us you don't need stuff to be happy, St. Greta Thunberg sailing to the US in an eco-friendly yacht to save the planet, and Harry and Meghan telling us how many kids we should have, where is the reset button? It needs to be pressed. Matthew, a very good uh, morning to you and welcome morning. to the show. Uh, that's that sort of sums up the feelings that a lot of people have in this day and age, that we are living in a world of um, advice. You know, we're getting advice from all sorts of places that we weren't asking it for it from. Absolutely. You know, and thinking of uh, royal children, a friend of mine was witness to a conversation in which a rather tactless journalist commiserated with Prince Philip over the problems he'd been having with, uh, as it was then, Charles and Diana. Yes. And he said, <laughs> Prince Philip snapped, well, what do you want us to do? Strangle them at birth? <laughs> <laughs> he is a very refreshing uh, yes. source of uh, all sorts of things, isn't he, Prince Philip? But, but, yeah, I mean, we are in interesting times, aren't we, it would seem. And I know that um, you've had some interesting times in the past week or so, uh, being accused of being a racist and, and being accused of uh, getting it all wrong over the squad and President Trump and all that, which we'll come to in a second. But, I mean, you know, we've got this sort of climate change people telling us that we're not doing enough to save the planet. We've got people like Harry and Meghan virtue signalling all over the place, telling us what a great and interesting couple they are, doing a magazine articles for Vogue, editing Vogue. I mean, it's all very odd, isn't it? Yes, you could probably say that at any point, though. I can't really remember a time in my life when one couldn't bump into someone in the street and say what crazy times we're living in. I, it's a mad, mad world, my masters, as, uh, yes. as somebody once said. I do think it's got a bit madder, though, don't you? But Just I do, at the moment? yes. And I think, I mean, I was reading um, um, a sort of exchange you had post the uh, the racism column uh, and all of that uh, in, in, in some other um, online forum. 
Because you were saying that you don't indulge in social media, and as a result of that, you don't see an awful lot of no, the craziness no. that goes People on. say, oh, you're in a Twitter storm. I yeah. say, am I? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was interesting, because, I mean, just to recap, you several of your own sort of fellow columnists on The Times were up in arms and saying, but Matthew, you're such a normally reasonable man. And all you'd basically said, if I can paraphrase it, correct me if I'm wrong, was that sometimes when you come to a country as an immigrant... Uh, you might wish to be slightly less critical of that country until you have become a citizen. And one of the interesting things that I thought you said was that you don't become a citizen overnight. You don't just sort of line up behind the immigration counter, get your stamp, and then you're a citizen. That That, that is exactly what I said. And... Uh... People can call me racist if, if they want to. I'm I'm not. Uh, and I wasn't talking about the colour of people's skins. I was talking about assimilation in a culture. A country has a culture. And uh, in time, sometimes over generations, sometimes much faster, people who arrive assimilate. Until they do, and to the extent that they haven't, of course, they have every right to criticise. I'm a great believer in free speech, that they can say what they like, but they will be heard differently yes. if they don't seem entirely to belong to the culture that they're criticising. Mm. That, that was all I was saying. And isn't it interesting... I, 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 I live in Derbyshire. I've, I've lived in this, near the same village for nearly 40 years. I still don't criticise local people and local customs in the way that I would if I were one of them. Mm. I, I, you, ju you just know that you're going to be heard differently if you're seen as an incomer. But, of course, the mistake you made, and I'm not saying it was a mistake, but the mistake you made in the eyes of some others was that you did it through the prism of a Donald Trump conversation well, and anything that goes anywhere near what looks like some kind of support for Donald Trump has an entire army of ma maniacs after you straight away. That was the mistake I, I made. Uh, I, I, I did make clear that I thought Trump was an idiot and his yeah. remarks were offensive and, and completely inappropriate. But if, if what I was trying to say was there's Trump and there's people uh, with whom his message sometimes resonates and they're not the same. Some mm. quite good people resonate to some quite bad politicians, as I have discovered in the Brexit case. Yes. And, and, and we shouldn't tell a whole lot of Americans who just feel a bit prickly uh, about people that they don't see as part of their culture, criticising their culture, we shouldn't tell them they're all racists. Uh, but, but in appearing to, if not defend Trump, at least to understand the, the, the chord that he was striking, I did sound, perhaps to some people, as though, as though I sympathise with Trump. Of course I don't. He's no, that's the trouble, total isn't it? buffoon. But that's the trouble in this world in which we now yeah. live, that you're either on one side or the yes. other. Yeah. And in fact, the only thing I believe that the, 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 the Trump sort of uh, argument happened, sort of won was, was that basically all of the people that support Donald Trump now support him even more and yeah. are even more likely to vote for him uh, in the next general election in America. Um, and the people who hate him will continue to hate him. Yeah. There is no middle ground, it seems to me, in American politics anymore, and, and, and largely not very much middle ground in this country either. And some of us in journalism, and I don't accept myself from this criticism, ha have been guilty of making it worse. I have tended in arguments with, um, with Brexiteers, I think, to ad adopt the tone that they're just crazy, uh, that they don't understand... Uh, 
in talking to people who voted Leave, I've sometimes adopted the argument that uh, it's much more complicated than they realised. And I, I see that that can sometimes come across as sneering or or condescending. And, and so you widen the gap instead of reaching out. Yes. Which I, I, there I, is, there I, is no it. doubt. I mean, I found it interesting yesterday watching what was going on in Wales, for example. Wales voted overall to leave the European Union. And although not much is made of that, you know, we hear that from the National Farmers Union people who are in Wales saying that this will be a disaster if there's a no deal, that tariffs will be 40% on Welsh lamb. Some of which might be true, but much of which is is speculation. It's speculative because, you know, many people would say, well, why would you add a 40% tariff to something just because that is the maximum tariff you could add? If you're buying Welsh lamb and you want to eat lamb and you're buying it in the, in the continent of Europe, unless you've got somewhere else to buy it from, why would you suddenly make it more expensive? Well, I agree that, that Welsh farmers don't speak for the people of Wales. No. Uh, they are um, a small, I think it's 10%. 10% of the economy of Wales, anyway, they're, they're, they're quite important to the Welsh economy, yeah. but they're, they're not representative of everybody in, or most people in, in Cardiff or Swansea, for instance. But actually, hill farmers, and I come from a, an area of England which has uh, d- depends to quite a degree on, on hill farming, sheep farming, do face a big problem with well, after we leave the European Union, if we do... You say that the European Union won't uh, slap tariffs onto. Well, I'm not saying they won't, but I'm saying I don't know whether they will. Well, they have for the rest of the world, and they're doing it to protect their own farmers. And um, of course, we were amongst that group that were protected. When we're not protected, I think we probably will face tariffs trying to sell agricultural produce into the EU. That may well be, but what I'm saying is it's not a certainty at no, the moment. No, um, no. I mean, my, one of my beliefs about the whole deal versus no deal scenario is that there is, and I think you've said something similar, there is no such thing really as a finite deal. You know, if we were to get some kind of deal before leaving the European Union on October the 31st, it would not necessarily be a completely sort of open and shut case where everything would be sorted out. We'd still have some kind of period of transition. It would still probably take two or three or maybe five years to work everything out. Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm sure that's right. So, so if we had no deal and we started that same process after leaving, yeah. would it actually make any difference? Well, it would only make a difference in that we would be applying... Uh, to the EU for a, a deal from the outside rather than negotiating with the countries who are still our partners on, yeah. on the inside. Uh, it would rather depend on the way in which we approached it. If we approached it, as Boris Johnson seems to have, by saying we won't give you the 39 billion, actually we've already given them 5 billion, but we won't give you the 39 billion that was agreed with uh, your your predecessor, agreed with Theresa May, mm. you know, that will start off in bad blood. But but it's it's a point Rory Stewart was making throughout the Conservative leadership campaign. There's no such thing as no deal. We'll have to have a deal with the European Union because they're our largest, by far, our largest trading partner. Whether we do the deal before or after we leave is a different question. Yes. I mean, I watched Nigel Lawson being questioned on a panel discussion at Bloomberg the other day, um, which, funnily enough, I saw on social media, which is where I see an awful lot of stuff. Um, and he was asked the same question. Well, how will Britain cope outside of the European Union? Um, and he said, well, I imagine we'll cope like many other countries outside of the European Union, of which there are many, uh, most of which have better economies than those inside the European Union. So I think what I'm trying to say, the trouble is in all of these arguments is that, you know, I can find an equal and reasoned argument on both sides, whichever way I look. And people, I think, are, having decided they either want to leave or they want to remain, are stuck in this kind of echo chamber of their own, where they only believe one side, and they don't. there's hardly anybody who actually takes for takes 
a measured stance in the middle, if you like. Yes, that's, that's true. Uh, most countries outside the U European Union do manage all right, though almost every country outside the Union belongs to a trading bloc of some kind or other. So I think if we leave the EU, we will have to join another trading bloc. It might be the United States, uh, for instance. Yeah. But um, I don't think we could just be entirely alone in the world without a network of, of free trade agreements yeah. with, with like-minded countries. Indeed. And I think that all of these things are possible. I, I slightly worry that we've become uh, this kind of slightly timid human race. And I don't say that Britain is timid or anything like that, but what I mean is that Rather like those who, who complain about the world coming to an end and the climate rebellion, the extension rebellion people, it's almost like you want everything to be perfect and you want the world to, to suit you down to the ground. And if it doesn't, then you're not buying any of it. Mm. And basically that's the kind of feeling I get from people that I speak to, um, particularly those who are on the Remain side, it seems, who, who keep saying, well, what if this happens or what if that happens? And, you know, if you lived like that, you'd literally never leave the house. I don't you? think it's particularly those on the Remain side. I think it's equally true of those on the Leave side. Everybody seems to be striving for some kind of perfection and you're quite right, it can't be reached. And no. then they start blaming everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I say from the Remain side mostly because they're mostly the ones who say it can't be done like an awful lot of the politicians that I speak to. You know, we were in Downhill College Green uh, again last week for three days and we had politician after politician mm. into the, the talk radio tent, uh, which is fast becoming a place to be. And many of them who are against leaving the European Union, are quite openly against leaving the European Union, say that it just literally can't be done, that it's too difficult, that you know we will never be able to find a, a solution to this particular problem. It, it undoubtedly can be done. And where I think the, the Remain side has, has made a serious mistake is suggesting that total mayhem and chaos will ensue on the 1st of November yeah. after we have left the European Union. There, there will be, I'm, I'm sure, some pretty annoying nuisance and disruption, but we will settle down and the sun will still continue to rise. <laughs> My argument as a, a very strong Remainer will be that we will just gradually get left behind the rest of the continent uh, in, in, in economic growth so that it, it will be not a sudden ripping asunder of two sides but a gradual parting of the ways in which over the years we'll find ourselves sinking a bit as mm. we did before we joined the mm. European Union. Well, that's an interesting point to, to stop there for a moment on. We'll like to take some calls on this, 0344 499 1000, um, very, very shortly, because uh, Matthew Paris is here. Uh, he's here for about another 10 minutes or so. If you've got a question for him, uh, feel free to put it to him. Uh, a lot of people on Twitter actually were saying to me, why have you got him coming on the show? Because he's one of those mad Remainers. And I said, well, we are in fact a broad <laughs> church here at Talk Radio. People have got me down uh, as a Brexiteer, which I'm not particular. I happen to think we should leave only because we voted to leave. But let's have some calls. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. This is Talk Radio. Uh, we'll hear from more of you coming up next. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Oh, well, in five years' time, we could be walking around a zoo with the sun shining down over me and you. And there'll be love in the bodies of the elephants. Turn up at my hands over your eyes. 
bridges, but you'll peek through and there'll be sun, sun, sun all over our bodies and sun, sun, sun. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk Radio, and we are not only uh, the voice of common sense from this side of the microphone, but we're also the voice of common sense from the outside world too, because we like to hear from you and we like to hear what you've got to say. Uh, Simon has tweeted in. He says, great to hear Matthew on the show. Always been a big fan of his, but I must admit feeling frustrated by what I consider to be a rather condescending attitude to leave. It's interesting to hear him say that he reckons he might have erred in causing unintended offence. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. Uh, Giles, however, says Matthew was in favour of the Euro, uh, he told us the same rubbish if we didn't join the Euro. No. Um, were you in favour of the Euro? No, 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 I've never been in favour of the Euro. <laughs> that, was, that was always a bad idea. Well, there you are. I mean, I was going to ask you if you found yourself moving in any way, shape or form since the referendum as far as your attitude to how it should be done or whether it can be done in, in any particular way better than another. Uh, my attitude towards the EU has changed a bit. I was always, and am still at heart, a Eurosceptic. I hate huge bureaucratic organisations. Mm. I, I hate the, the smugness of, uh, of uh, the Berlaymont and the, and the Brussels bureaucrats, and, 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 and I hate the air of, if not contempt, at least disregard for, for the people that mm. you often encounter when talking to, to Brussels-style people. Mind you, I hate the same thing in Whitehall yes. and, uh, and Westminster here. Well, it's not as if we don't have plenty of our own, is no, it? No, no, we do have plenty. We've manufactured it all on our own. We don't need, we don't need to import it from Europe. But um, the, the, the campaign to get us out of Europe has made me understand how important Europe is the cohesion of our continent is in really an increasingly dangerous world. And so I've, I've tended to, to be able to see the positive side of European unity, where before I only saw the, the grating and irritating side. OK. Let's take a couple of calls, because some people want to ask you some questions. Malcolm, first of all, uh, is in Oxford. Malcolm, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for calling. Morning, what's, your, what's your question morning. to Matthew? Can you explain to me why... All the Ramonas, and I call them Ramonas like uh, Adonis and that, they never talk about the negative effect on the EU if they don't agree a new deal with us. Well, it is certainly true that our, our departure, especially in a no-deal situation, will hurt the European Union, the other 27 members, uh, uh, as well as it will hurt us. But they, well, they are 40% of our trade... Uh, each individual European country, we are only you know, four, five, six percent of their trade, and uh, as a result, we will be disproportionately hurt. But I agree that both sides would be the losers. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, Matthew, but I disagree that uh, you know Germany alone sell one million cars to this country, one million, and tariffs on those cars is going to hurt the German motor industry. What about Spain? What about France? What about Italy? You go through all these countries and maybe uh, they, it's only 6%, but it's a very important 6% of their economy. A well, very important. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure it is important and uh, hopefully we can agree a deal with the European Union where uh, we don't slap tariffs on their cars and they don't slap tariffs on, on cars from us. But if we did... Uh, BMW might lose, I don't know, 8%, 12% of their 
UK sales, we would lose virtually all our European sales. Well, I think, the point, I think the point is, is that the, what I think, Malcolm, as well, is that the, 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 the warnings that we hear from people, like we were hearing yesterday from the Welsh uh, farming community, that 40% tariffs are going to kill our industry. Well, that may well be true, but there's no reason to believe that it has to be a 40% tariff. That's my point. But listen, we've got to move on because Mike's in York. He wants to ask a question as well. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. What would you like yeah. to ask? Well, I think uh, Matthew is about my age. Um, but I always remember Matthew, once he came up to retirement, one of the things that kind of has always stuck in my mind is now I'm retired, I can say what I think rather than what I've had to think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's up to a point, Lord Copper, I think, isn't it? No, Mike, Mike is quite right, and he is remembering a, a question time that I did some time ago. Certainly. In, in, in yep. which I, I said, I really just don't care what people think any longer. <laughs> and, you know, someone asked me about Arab-Israeli relations and the Middle East, and I said, I don't have an opinion. I just find it all incredibly tedious. They're all arguing with each other. I don't have a view. And uh, I, d d d David d Dimbleby l looked a, a bit a bit shocked and said, what do you mean you don't have an opinion? <laughs> You're on the show to have an opinion. But sometimes I don't. You, you see, Matthew, and what bothers me the most, and probably my age anyway is for the last 30-odd uh, years, I've been watching a social engineering experiment, and the BBC has been a great exponent of that. Now we have a newspaper, um, if you like, columnists, who it's just opinion. It's not news anymore. Nobody can say this is what's going to happen in Brexit, or nobody, can, nobody knows. And I'm just wondering, you know, kind of, as a, if you like, a, a columnist and a, a newspaper and actually access to quite a few news um, programmes. Uh, what's your feeling that now it, the balance has tipped and we no longer have news, we just have opinion and none of it's supported by fact? Well, you make a very interesting point, Mike, uh, and a, a little bit of background here. Newspapers used to be primarily there to report the news and were the only source of news report and they might have opinion columns, but they were secondary. The development of modern technology, both in broadcasting and in IT, means that people can get the news much more quickly from many more sources than they used to be able to. And so, actually, over decades, newspapers have moved more towards features, opinion columns, holiday programmes, all that sort of campaigns. stuff. Campaigns. Yeah, ca campaigns of one kind or, or another. And, of course, that's very much to the advantage of, of people like me. But for those who just seek news, you can probably find it online much quicker then you'll be, and it'll be much fresher than you, you will be able to get in newspapers. But the interesting thing as well that's happened, Mike, thanks very much for your call because we're out of time. The other interesting thing that's happened is that, um, that many more sources are out there mm. and professional people, and I call myself a professional journalist, some people might argue with that, but I've been doing it for many, many years in many different guises. I know how to, to disseminate information. I know how to, to filter information. I know which bits of information I can read with some confidence and which I can read because it's not particularly a great source. But not everybody has that skill. And so I think an awful lot of people are now getting their news from what I would call some dodgy sources yeah. and becoming influenced by it. But I hope... Uh, Mike, that that's just a phase that we're going through yeah. um, where people are investing perhaps too much trust in what they see on, on the internet and that the, the coming generation are going to learn that you can't trust everything equally. And that's where a newspaper like mine, The Times, which, which is now read much more online than it is yeah. on paper, if we can keep 
our reputation for, for tr reliability. And if people trust us, then, then we do have a future online. Yes, and I think that's very, very important. Well, Matthew, I, who knew a half an hour would go so quickly, I'm afraid? That's um, it. Uh, it's all over. So yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. We'll have to do this again because there was lots of more questions I wanted to ask you about Boris Johnson. Maybe we'll give him a bit longer in post uh, before we start You've escaped Boris this time. <laughs> critiquing We'll him. get you. Uh, but we'll come back to you. Thank you very much indeed. Matthew Paris from The Times. Uh, his column is in there today, so go and have a look at it and uh, we'll come back to you with more information, more calls, more news and none of it's fake. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we haven't spoken to Mr Russell Quirk for a while, so I'm quite looking forward to this, but a new report apparently claims that it's going to be so difficult to own uh, your own home uh, within the next, uh, or past the next seven years, that young people are just frankly not going to be able to do it. Uh, I guess the question, Russell, is, is have we reached a kind of stagnation point for a lot of people in the housing market? Very good afternoon to you, Mr Quirk. Yeah, good afternoon, Mike. Hi. Yeah, so, yeah, the tipping point, I guess. Yeah. Um, the dream of home ownership. Um, I, I guess the question is, should it be a dream at all, really? Yes. I mean, I, I guess it has been, hasn't it? Uh, if you're as old as I am, then um, I've certainly had it drummed into me over many, many years uh, and did as a kid, really. The, you know, it's, it's, you're kind of right of passage. It's one of those things that you absolutely should do and have a right to do in yeah. terms of owning a home. The problem is, of course, on the one hand, that house prices have accelerated away from earnings, but I guess that's countered also by the fact that, you know, I remember when I bought my first property at the age of 18, mm. and it was... My goodness, that was, that was quick. I, I know, well, yeah, but... Um, you must have been a boring teenager. Well, no, I just um, troublesome and thrown out of my house. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but the difference was, back then, interest rates were circa 10%. So the yeah. cost of a mortgage was sub substantially more than it is now. So you could subscribe to the view as some of uh, my and your Twitter followers seem to this morning, Mike, that if you can't man up or woman up and buy a home, uh, well, then it's on the basis that you're too spoiled and you really should try harder and perhaps stop eating avocado sandwiches and buying iPhones every five minutes. <laughs> uh, but I, I do think there's a point here that the biggest obstacle, of course, to home ownership it's not so much the cost of ownership. I mean, actually owning a home with regard to mortgage rates being as they are uh, and so on is actually cheaper than it is renting in a lot of places. The biggest problem is deposits. Now, this Santander report this morning says that 70% uh, of youngsters, so 25 to 34-year-olds, are saying that they, they think that they have now had to give up on their dream of owning a home, and mainly because the average first-time buy deposit now, particularly in London, is around 40 thousand pounds. 40% of youngsters haven't saved a penny, not a thing for their deposit. Maybe they're relying on the bank of mum and dad. Well, it's pretty difficult to raise that kind of money from scratch as well, isn't it? I mean, you could be forever putting money into a bank and you get absolutely no interest in it whatsoever in a savings account uh, unless you lock it in for a, lot, a long time. So unless somebody really gifts you a chunk of money like that, you're never going to make it. But I mean, it's also slightly skewed this, isn't it? Because if you go to parts of England where it's not quite so expensive, people can still afford to buy homes. So it's very much a London and the South East kind of problem, this, isn't it? It, it really is. And, and, and I think that your point in your preamble, I think, is well made, that perhaps we should stop being so obsessed yeah. um, in, insofar as having to be on the, the property ladder as a, as a homeowner. Um, now, although that's cultural and it's kind of dialed into us as a, as a kind of part of our DNA, there, there is nothing wrong with renting. I mean, renting is not a second class thing. There is no there shouldn't be a stigma to renting albeit that I don't think government makes it very easy to rent satisfactory on the basis that a typical rental agreement, as tenancy agreement, is still only for 12 months max. So, yes. so until that changes and we start seeing 
rental as as attractive and as secure and as as, as safe from a tenure point of view as as, as owning, um, then I guess it will continue to be seen as kind of second best. But it shouldn't be. No, indeed. And they've also made it more difficult, have they not, for buy to rent landlords to actually rent out their properties. And lots of them have stopped doing it just because of all the cost involved of tax and capital gains and all of that. And many of them are now renting out their properties to, to Airbnb because it's a lot easier and a lot less red tape. Well, in, indeed, uh, there, there is no doubt, in my view, as a property guy, the buy to let landlords who really are the lifeblood of the pro- private rental sector, of course, they own the stock that, that provides those tenants with properties and indeed in the social housing sector. You know, whilst government and local authorities continue to fail to provide the bright amount of social rent, council housing and so on, those landlords have to step in and fill the gap. And, and what we've seen over the last three or four years, Mike, as you well know, is we've seen tax relief for those landlords slashed. We've seen stamp duty penalties piled on. So now you have to pay an extra 3% as a landlord if you buy a property. Mm. Um, Section 20 one repealed and, and I could go on and on and on. So that that investor, without doubt, has been has been kicked on the ground repeatedly. And actually, what we will end up with is those landlords running for the hills and actually going into other asset classes, which means the things like rent controls, which of course Sadiq Khan announced his intention to persuade the government to allow him to do just yeah. last week, um, is a really stupid. Thing to do because it has such consequences in terms of those those landlords simply turn into other asset classes instead. Yeah, well, almost everyone who heard those plans sort of uh, just rubbished them straight away, basically saying, "Well, all that's going to happen is the agents are going to take more of a fee, and it's going to be structured differently. And in fact, it could be that prices go up rather than down." Yeah, well, only just about every property expert and economist in the world uh, <laughs> Sadiq Khan's plans were stupid, but he doesn't seem to be listening, unfortunately. No, well, he doesn't listen to many people, I'm afraid. What about this other story, The Times today? Virgin Money launching its first home loan with a fixed interest rate for 15 years. They're getting so worried about the slowing down of the market that they're offering sort of better deals and, and maybe more incentives for people to get involved. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think one of the keys to... Uh, ensuring that you know people people can afford to live with a roof over their heads you know particularly as a homeowner in the future is a variety of new products now whether that is the security of knowing what your mortgage rate and your mortgage payment is going to be for the next 15 years i think that's a good thing so more choice is better but there's also a whole bunch of businesses out there now starting up where you know traditionally if you wanted a mortgage it was kind of you and your partner or you and a mate perhaps and that was it there are now businesses that decide to say well hang on a sec maybe we don't need to and can't live like that anymore. So yeah. you're, you're, you're seeing this, the rise of startups that allow multiple individuals to buy properties on a mortgage together. So I, I think all of these innovations, all of these new approaches are very, very welcome um, because, look, we're simply not the same society. We're not the same world as we were 15, mm. 20 years ago when all of these products were, uh, were were launched. No, and yet we hear all the time, at least once or twice a week, a massive debate about the shortage of homes in this country, the need to build more homes, you know, and it, it doesn't sort of connect to me. You know, the we have a slowing down of the housing market, but if we can't build homes that people can buy, what's the point of building them? Yeah, yeah. And, and look, there is a huge shortage. So all of the wisdom really says that there's about 100,000 homes uh, that are not built every year that should be. So in, in a nutshell, 200,000 homes are built and we need 300,000. And, and that's not just homes for people to buy. That's social rent. That's build to rent. That's shared ownership. That's right. all sorts of different tenures. Um, and, and, you know, one would be forgiven for thinking, Mike, frankly, that there's some kind of, you know, contrived conspiracy that is stopping governments, 
the GLA local authorities getting together and building the right amount of houses. Because frankly, there's enough land. I mean, only eight or nine percent of the UK is built on. Uh, there's lots of public land that could be used. Um, we could, as Jacob Rees-Mogg has very recently suggested, start thinking a bit more intelligently about the Green Belt. And although Middle England will be horrified at me saying this, look, if, if the Green Belt is not all green because some of it is old scrapyards and you know rubbish bits of land that could be regenerated into housing, why on earth don't we think that? And the reason we don't is because politicians are very, very scared indeed that if they stand up and support building on the Green Belt, they won't get elected by Middle England next time. Right. It's a fascinating state of affairs. And Boris Johnson's kind of intimated that he believes that uh, uh, it's time to maybe push up once again um, the, 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 the ceiling level for um, capital gains, right, um, and stamp duty, because he's, he's saying that anything under 500,000, we might have to get rid of the stamp duty on. Yeah, there isn't an estate agent in the UK right now, Mike, that doesn't love Boris Johnson, I don't think. Um, I mean, the, the fact that he's talking about raising the threshold on all purchases to 500,000, whereas at the moment it's first-time buyers up to 300,000 pounds that are exempt. And he's also, and, and, and this will be very, very welcome indeed, the fact that he's talking about reducing the rate of stamp duty at the top end of the market, so in prime and super prime, mm. uh, is undoubtedly a good thing. Because, you know, I know not everyone will feel sorry for people that own a home or are buying or selling a property in the likes of Kensington, Chelsea, Marylebone and so on. But the the top end of the market that does attract, you know, foreign buyers that spend money and pay corporation tax here and so on, that end of the market, the kind of two, three, four, five million pound plus has been absolutely battered started by George Osborne back in 2014-15 with continual increases in stamp duty. I mean, you'll now pay over 12% above £1.5 million if you buy a property of that value. It's incredible, isn't it? Now, here's a little test for you, and I'm sorry to spring this on you, but since you're (laughs) the expert in property that I know you to be, friends of mine are having a problem at the moment. They're trying to sell um, quite an expensive flat in London, in South London. It's worth more money now, obviously, than it was when they bought it years and years ago. But they're getting stymied by the local council because apparently they're trying trying to find uh, some document for some planning permission that they were given about 20 years ago. And the local council has said... Those documents are no longer accessible uh, because of some kind of health and safety thing that they don't actually have the documents anymore. But they can't sell the place unless they can find it. What can they do? Well, there's two ways around that. If something has existed with or without planning permission for more than four years, then effectively it's got um, it's got kind of assumed consent. Right. So, so that shouldn't be needed in the first place as right. long as they can confirm that the extension or the loft conversion or whatever has existed for more than four years. Right. But, but also, as their lawyer should be uh, advocating, there's a wonderful thing called an indemnity policy, which the likes of Aviva and goodness knows who else in the insurance world will provide for not that much money that right. will pay out and kind of protect the future buyer of that property against any claims as a consequence of that documentation not being available. So there's there's a very easy way around it, and they just need to use the words indemnity policy to their lawyer, uh, and that should be the magic wand that gets waved and allows them to proceed further. Excellent. Well, that's very good advice. Thank you very much indeed. Russell Quirk, uh, a man who's always got an answer about anything to do with property, property expert, founder uh, of uh, an organisation known as Propaganda PR. Uh, let's take your calls on this because we are sort of wedded to this ridiculous idea of owning property. And if it gets to the point where, uh, like in Paris, like in lots of cities in Germany, uh, like in New York, for example, lots and lots of people, many more people rent rather than buy because the house prices are so ridiculously high. And nobody has a problem with that. And maybe we need to have more of a a rethink about that. Why do you have to own property? It's not necessary, is it? 
Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.